This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Mona El Bahrawi, who is a professor of practice histopathology at the Imperial College of London, also professor of pathology in Alexandria University in Egypt, and the president of the Egyptian Committee for Pathology. Uh, welcome, Mona. Uh, thank you very much. Um, it, it's a pleasure to be with you here today. Well, thank you. And, uh, and Mona, this is, uh, first of all, congratulations on this really great article um, that was written by you and your team. Uh, this is going to be our lead article titled Ovarian Sex Core Stromal Tumors, an update on clinical features, molecular changes, and management. So certainly very excited to uh, speak with you a lot, uh, a lot of questions, obviously, and, uh, and I'm sure our audience will really value um, our conversation. So I wanted to first start by, obviously, we recognize that these are rare tumors and, and there's a lot to be learned. Um, so first, I would like to start by asking you about just general information on sex core stromal tumors. How frequent are they and, and when do, do they usually present? So, um, as you very rightly said, sex cord stromal tumors are uh, very rare tumors of the ovary, and they usually um, occur in the first two or three decades of life. Mm -hmm. um, some of the tumors present um, uh, more commonly later than that, like granulosis cell tumor. Um, and actually, they represent approximately 7% of all um, malignant neoplasms of the um, ovary. And uh, you mentioned that there are three uh, classifications, I understand, of sex core stromal tumors. I wonder if you could speak to um, what type of tumors are in these three categories and, and specifically what type of tumors within each of these categories. So um, according to the World Health Organization classification of tumors of the ovary, um, the latest update for which was released um, uh, a couple of months ago, at, towards the end of um, 2020, um, sex cord stromal tumors are classified into three main groups, which um, include pure stromal tumors, pure sex cord tumors, and mixed sex cord stromal tumors. The pure stromal tumors arise from the mesenchymal cells of the ovarian stroma, and these include fibromas, ecomas, sclerosing stromal tumors, microcystic stromal tumors, Leydig cell tumors and steroid cell tumors. Um, whereas pure sex cord tumors arise from the primitive sex cord uh, cells and include granulosa cell tumors, Ecoli cell tumors, and sex cord tumors with annular tubules. And then you've got the group of mixed sex cord and stromal tumors, which include um, sex, uh, Sertoli Leydig cell tumors and sex cord stromal tumors that are not otherwise specified. Okay. Uh, and I think you have uh, these very nicely uh, laid out in uh, table one of the uh, of the articles for our for our readers to to see as well. So I wanted to start by discussing now the the pure uh, stromal tumors. Uh, you mentioned fibromas. Um, when do they usually uh, present, and are, are they usually bilateral, unilateral when they're presenting? We usually come across them um, in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women, and commonly they are unilateral. Uh, however, you can have bilateral cases, and these, um, in, on, in some occasions, the bilaterals may be associated with Gordon syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and actually, the, that, that, that was a syndrome that I, I have to be honest, I had not, never heard of. Uh, so you mentioned the syndrome Gorlin uh, syndrome associated with uh, fibromas. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about it and, and why is this syndrome important in the context of uh, fibromas? So um, it, it is actually a very rare hereditary disease, and, uh, and maybe um, people may be more familiar with its other name, which is um, also basal cell nevus syndrome, because basal cell um, nevi are one of the characteristic features of this um, syndrome. So it is an um, um, inherited disease or syndrome, inherited in autosomal dominant matter, uh, manner caused by germline mutation um, in the human homologue of the patch gene, which is located in chromosome 9. And usually the um, people who have this syndrome um, have multiple organ systems, developmental abnormalities, and an increased risk of developing several types of benign and malignant tumors. Mm. Now, ovarian fibromas, um, when associated with this syndrome, uh, are usually bilateral and calcified, and they actually develop in 15 to 25 percent of women with um, with this syndrome. So, in some situations, encountering bilateral and calcified ovarian fibromas, which is not a very common event, uh, we may be getting a hint that's suggestive of the possibility the patient may be suffering from Gorlin syndrome, mm -hmm. and then the accurate diagnosis um, can be made possible with paying close attention to familial and past medical histories, as well as um, thorough physical examination. And if so, um, if this is suspected, actually in these patients, a careful follow-up would be recommended for detecting malignancies and any other complications associated with the syndrome. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, now you, let's move on to the thecomas, and I know that these are very rare. Um, can you tell us about the age group where we... Um, I see these types of tumors, and um, it was also interested in, in learning about whether there were any chromosomal aberrations in these types of tumors. So these uh, tumors are benign variants of um, um, sex cord stromal tumors, and uh, they are usually seen in women under 30 years of age. And um, actually, the, the cytogenetic analysis has identified the presence of trisomies of chromosomes 12 and 4 in some of these tumors. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you also highlight a tumor that actually I don't think I have ever come across, uh, sclerosing stromal tumors. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these? Um, sclerosing stromal tumors are, um, again, very rare. We, we see very few of them in our um, practice every year. They um, represent less than 5% of all sex cord stromal tumors. About 70% of them are diagnosed in young women aged between 14 and 29, and they are usually unilateral. Mm -hmm. And sometimes patients present with hormonal manifestations, which are primarily... Um, androgenic ones. Mm -hmm. um, th there were reports of gene fusions of the um, FHL2, GLI2 uh, genes, which were detected in 65% of these tumors. Um, and these fusions um, activate the sonic hedgehog pathway and hence the 
um, really serving as an oncogenic driver for uh, the development of and progression of these tumors. And interestingly, um, these gene fusions have not been reported in other types of sex-caused stromal tumors. Mm. You know, uh, before we get into some of the more common uh, types, uh, I want to um, just uh, draw upon another uh, very rare, uh, the microcystic stromal tumors. Um, would you just tell us a little bit about these, Vera, and, and uh, what are the characteristics of these tumors? Well, actually, the, the, um, I have particular interest in, in these tumors because they have got some very interesting features that I will, I will share with you. But uh -huh. first to start, again, they are very rare, and they present in patients uh, aged between 20 and 60 years. So it's quite a, um, a, span, a, a wide span of mm -hmm. um, ages that you can encounter them in. One of the interesting features of these tumors is that they have a very distinct immunoprofile. You know, we as histopathologists use immunohistochemistry um, a lot in our day-to-day uh, -day practice. And usually sex-caused stromal tumors uh, express markers of these tumors like inhibin and calretinin. But actually microcystic stromal tumors do not um, express um, sex-caused stromal tumor markers. But what mm. they do express is uh, nuclear expression of beta-catenin, which is, uh, well, beta-catenin is, is, is a very interesting uh, protein. It's, it, it can act as a proto-oncogene or oncogene. And also, it is a very critical member of the EPID-herin-catenin complex, which is uh, the composition of the adherent cell-cell um, junction. And the reason why um, these tumors show this nuclear expression is that they, uh, they, this is a reflection of a somatic mutation in this gene um, in um, exon 3. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is a hallmark that helps in the diagnosis of these tumors. Now, my um, research team has looked at the expression of all members of the epidherin um, catenin complex in different types of sex-caused stromal tumors. We studied 55 cases that represented different uh, types of uh, sex-caused stromal tumors, including microcystic stromal tumors. And interestingly, we found nuclear localization of um, three catenins, alpha, beta, and, and gamma, mm -hmm. uh, exclusively in microcystic uh, stromal tumors and not in any other um, sex-caused stromal tumors. And, and this work was published in the August 2016 issue of Histopathology. Yep, fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Um, so now, Mona, moving on to the, uh, uh, certainly the more common of the sex core stromal tumors, the, uh, the granulosa cell tumors. Um, just overall, where do these originate within the ovary? I was wondering if we, we can start with that. Yes, they, they do originate from normally proliferating granulosa cells with late pre-ovulatory follicles. Great. And um, wondering if you can tell us about the impact of inhibin as a, as a tumor marker. Um, I saw that, that you go into some details with regards to which form of inhibin is the most useful, um, particularly for the clinicians when managing uh, patients with uh, granulosa cell tumors. So um, inhibin is a glycoprotein hormone produced by ovarian granulosa cells. Um, and inhibin is composed of an alpha subunit and one of two types of beta subunits, either a beta A subunit, which gives us inhibin A, or a beta B subunit, which gives us inhibin B. 
Now, serum inhibin A and B falls very low or even undetectable levels in postmenopausal women due to the depletion of the ovarian follicles at this stage of life. Um, however, if the patient develops uh, granulosa cell tumors, you would find that the levels of the um, inhibins rising. Um, inhibin B is the main form of inhibin produced by granulosa cell tumors, and hence serum inhibin B levels um, is more effective than inhibin A level in reflecting disease cases. Okay. And, and therefore, it, um, the, the studying the levels of inhibin B can be used as a tumor marker for primary as well as um, recurrent granulosa cell tumors. And, and as a follow-up uh, question to that, I wanted to ask you, because often we will see patients that are coming in for second opinion, um, and routinely they come in with the inhibin level, but also with an estradiol level and a CA125 level. Um, I was wondering if you, if you could tell us whether, you know, these two markers, the estradiols and the CA125, are, are useful uh, when following patients with a diagnosis of granulosa cell tumors? So uh, it, they, they can be useful, but um, obviously in addition to inhibitors, so approximately 70% of patients with granulosa cell tumors have elevated circulating levels of estradiol, uh, but it rapidly decreases after removal of the tumor. Um, so it, it is helpful to okay. look at that, but it does not display... Um, a high degree of sensitivity to act as a sole reliable tumor marker for patients with uh, granulosa cell tumors. Okay. Um, regarding C CA1 to 5, as you know, it, is, um, it can be elevated in, in many pathological situations in the ovary and many other tumors, so it is not um, specific. It can be elevated in patients with granulosa cell tumors, but it, it is not a specific tumor marker for them. Um, there are, however, some reports um, of an association between high preoperative levels of CA1 to 5 and probability of tumor recurrence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I guess uh, it, it is something that we're going to continue seeing or perhaps even uh, continue uh, ordering for, for these patients. And I wanted to ask you also, um, because I, I saw that you do mention this uh, very nicely in the article, about uh, anti-mullerian hormone, or otherwise known also as mullerian inhibiting substance. Um, how is this practical in the, in the clinical setting uh, when managing patients with granulosa cell tumors? So um, anti-mullerian hormone is secreted mainly by ovarian granulosa cells of small follicles, and uh, women have undetectable serum anti-mullerian hormone levels um, until the prepubertal period, mm -hmm. whereas after puberty, serum anti-mullerian hormone levels um, of 2 to 5 nanogram per mil remain constant until clinical menopause when the levels become undetectable again. So the presence of elevated anti-mullerian hormone is a sensitive and specific marker for adult granulosa cell tumors. Um, uh, that, if used in combination with uh, inhibin beta again, can improve detection of a particularly recurrent disease. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now going on to the more common ones, obviously the, the adult granulosa cell tumors that I think they account for approximately 95% of all of the granulosa cell tumors. Um, you speak about distinct uh, mutations or, or chromosomal imbalances in uh, and I, I really thought this was really novel information. I was wondering if you can expand on that. 
So um, uh, approximately 70 to 97% of adult granulosis cell tumors carry a somatic uh, missense point mutation in the POXL2 gene. Uh, and this mutation plays an essential role in um, ovarian, uh, sorry, the, the, the gene, sorry, POXL2 gene plays an essential role in ovarian development and differentiation. And the presence of uh, POXL2 gene mutation is rather a pathognomonic hallmark of adult granulosis cell tumors as it is very rarely seen in, in other ovarian tumors. Now, in our day-to-day -day practice, we usually have no difficulty uh, making the diagnosis of uh, granulosis cell tumor on morphological grounds. But there are, however, sometimes cases that um, are a bit challenging and may show some um, shared features with other sex core stromal tumors. And at this point, uh, doing mutation um, studies for the POXL2 uh, gene status can be very helpful in clinching the diagnosis and telling us whether we are actually dealing with a granulosis cell tumor. Mm -hmm. um, this is the uh, principal um, gene mutation. There are several studies that have looked at copy number changes in granulosis cell tumors, and several have been identified, perhaps the most common of which is um, copy number changes in chromosomes 12, 14, and 22. But mm -hmm. we don't tend to use these um, copy number changes in our day-to-day -day practice. Okay, so it's not, not routinely part of, uh, of the information that, uh, that we use for practice. Um, now, the certainly, obviously, the much rarer, uh, from about 5% or so, the juvenile granulosis cell tumors. And I think I've only seen a handful of these uh, during my career. Um, how do they present in... in um, and, and, you know, and certainly, what, what is the typical uh, scenario for these patients? So, um, as you very rightly say, they are very rare. They represent about 5% of all granulosa cell tumors. And these tumors usually present in uh, women younger than 30 years of age, with a mean age of 13 years. And they usually present by, uh, in the form of an ovarian mass. And, and actually, um, and I've had this in my practice, you, because of the very young age they present at, usually when the surgeons and the oncologists send us the case and they're waiting for the diagnosis, they're um, expecting that we will come back with a diagnosis of a germ cell tumor. Mm. And usually that may come as a surprise when we say, actually, it, it, this is um, a sex cord stromal tumor. This is juvenile granulosis cell tumor. And, uh, and I believe you mentioned that um, these have relatively favorable prognosis and are almost always uh, unilateral and, and confined to the ovary. But I was also interested in, uh, you mentioned uh, that FOXL2 protein expression. And if you could talk a little bit about how is this relevant when differentiating the adult and juvenile granulosa cell tumors? So... Um Unlike adult granulosis cell tumors, juvenile granulosis cell tumors have either low or absent FOXL2 protein expression, mm. um, and this uh, can, can help providing a clear distinction between juvenile and adult type. They are fairly different morphologically, but again, in challenging cases, looking at protein expression and more so uh, gene mutation status can be helpful okay. in making the distinction. Great. So now the, these are the next uh, tumor that I want to talk about is often one that uh, when uh, when it comes up, uh, many in the in the tumor board or disposition conference are going back to 
you know, the manuscripts written about it to uh, to get a little bit better understanding or, 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 or recall the, the Sertoli uh, cell tumors. Um, and certainly I um, understand these are hormonally active in, in about 40 to 60% of cases. Um, which wondering if you can tell us how do these typically uh, present and... I believe you also mentioned some components of chromosomal abnormalities in Sertoli cell tumors. True. So as you rightly say, um, these tumors can present by uh, hormone manifestations um, in approximately 40 to 60 percent of cases, which are usually estrogenic, but occasionally you get cases with androgenic manifestations. Uh, and also some cases do present as um, a pelvic mass. To my knowledge, the presence of isochromosome 1Q is the sole chromosomal abnormality established in ovarian Sertoli cell tumors. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, I'm, and I saw that you also include uh, in, the, in the manuscript uh, information about uh, the sex score stromal tumors with annual, uh, annular tubules as well as the mixed uh, sex score stromal tumors. So certainly... Um, want to invite our, our readers to uh, look into the details of, of these as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you a more general question now uh, with regards to um, the overall management of patients with uh, sex core stromal tumors. And I was wondering if you could just give us an overview for our audience. Um, there are a variety of treatment options available, including primarily surgical therapy, but also chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, and targeted therapy. And, and these therapies may be used either alone or in combination, depending on several factors, including patient's age, uh, type of um, tumor, and uh, tumor stage. But surgery is generally considered the, the most effective treatment for sex cord stromal tumors. Yeah, and I think that certainly uh, for the majority of patients, um, it's generally uh, recommended to perform fertility uh, sparing surgery uh, since many of these patients are, are young patients um, looking to uh, have uh, children in the future as well. Um, True. Now, um, what about chemotherapy? Uh, I know that many uh, patients with uh, sex core stromal tumors uh, tend to undergo surgery, as you uh, appropriately mentioned, and, and subsequent to that, just very close follow-up. Um, but there are some scenarios where uh, chemotherapy is indicated, even in early-stage disease, and I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about that. So um, in addition to surgical therapy, which, which we agree is the uh, primary modality, chemotherapy may be recommended for patients uh, with um, advanced disease uh, or with recurrence. So I, I guess it's, it's an, it can be used early on in the management if the patient presents with tumor at an advanced stage. And um, one of the things also you did mention before was the role of hormonal therapy. And, and you know, one of the recurring themes with regards to sex work stromal tumors is that we continue to see how uh, many of these tumors are uh, hormone receptor positive or sensitive to hormones or anti-hormonal therapy. And um, I was wondering uh, when uh, should we consider hormonal therapy and in what setting? So, um, again, hormonal therapy is, is 
considered another treatment option for patients with um, uh, tumor recurrence or patients who uh, present with uh, advanced uh, stage disease at, from the outset. And there are reports of significant responses to different modalities of hormonal therapy, um, particularly with um, uh, aromatase inhibitors. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that is the most common uh, modality that, uh, that is used, particularly in the setting of, uh, of uh, recurrent granulosis cell tumor uh, and, and certainly after surgery, uh, and particularly optimal surgery, uh, it seems to be a, a very reasonable option in that setting. I also asked the audience to look into some of the more targeted therapy uh, details in the, in the manuscript where there is uh, discussions of a number of agents, including uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, targeted therapy as well. Um, Mona, it's been uh, really a pleasure speaking with you. Um, again, congratulations. This is a, a really fantastic article. And I was wondering if you had any uh, closing remarks for our audience. Well, um, first, I would like to thank you very much for um, giving us the opportunity to share with the readership of the distinguished journal um, our um, article on sex corticomal tumors. And um, I would like to say in the end that from the diagnostic perspective and speaking as a practicing gynecological histopathologist, mm -hmm. I can say that we currently have a strong enough knowledge base and reliable ancillary techniques that help us in making the diagnosis of the different subtypes of these tumors. However, um, from the perspective of um, tumor management and speaking as an academic pathologist in this era of personalized medicine, I have to say that there is still um, an unmet clinical need in the identification of therapeutic targets and development of targeted therapeutic agents to be added to the management modalities for aggressive and recurrent um, sex corticomal tumors. Um, this, however, um, is a really challenging task because these tumors generally seem to have a low gene mutation burden and, and particularly in, in the genes we commonly know as involved in tumor development and progression. Um, and this is actually one of the areas of current research uh, interest of my research team at Imperial College London. Yeah, it must be very exciting for you and your team uh, with so much uh, new information and new opportunities for exploring these, uh, these tumors. I, again, I wanted to thank you for the contributions you are making. Uh, and wanna thank you again for, for the value in this uh, particular article. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, Pedro. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you.